0: A frog is a lunar animal by many accounts. Sir Lowe's Dictionary of Symbols tells us that, quote, there are many legends which tell of a frog on the moon. In the ancient novel True Story by the Greek satirist Lucian of Somosida, there are men who live on the moon and eat flying frogs They catch the frogs from out of the air cooking them and inhaling the smoke and then somehow wringing liquid out of the smoke to drink due to its obvious association with water the frog has been associated with cleansing refreshment and purification the water deity of the mayas and aztecs was a frog In Huron mythology, the great frog swallowed all the waters of the earth, but was slain by Ioskala, the white one. The frog is associated with deluge myths, and is the lord of the waters in both American Indian and Australian aboriginal folklore. I covered deluges in the first frogs episode. In Alfred Jerry's surrealist novel, The Exploits and Opinions of Dr. Faustroll, which I discussed in my interview with Yerk P., there's a monstrous toad whose mouth is flush with the ocean's surface, and who at the end of every day devours the sun and burrows into the earth to emerge at the other pole and shit it out undigested. In Zoroastrianism, the frog is considered evil, and it belongs to Ahriman, the destructive spirit and adversary of the good god Ahura Mazda. The Revelation of John, the final book of the Bible, tells of three unclean spirits which come like frogs out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet at the end of days. In the previous episode, we described a ritual crucifixion of a frog by the magician Alistair Crowley, in which the frog representing Christ was supposed to go forth upon the earth as a lying spirit serving Crowley. Quote, and this shall be its reward to stand beside me and hear the truth that I utter, the falsehood whereof shall deceive men. End quote. Crowley knew his revelations well, and it's likely that his ritual was modeled on the passage about the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, all of whom Crowley identified with himself. In the preamble to Liber 70, or the cross of a frog, he says that it describes, quote, ceremonies proper to obtaining a familiar spirit of a mercurial nature, as described in the apocalypse of St. John the Divine from a frog or a toad, end quote. In the 1871 Victorian science fiction novel Vril, or The Coming Race, by Edward Bulwer-Lytton. A man travels into the hollow earth to discover a subterranean race that lives off an invisible energy source called Vril. The men are called the Vrilja, and their ancestors look like frogmen. There's a debate in their society as to whether ordinary frogs descended from them, or whether the men are in fact a degeneration from the frogs. Because of the esoteric themes in another of his novels, Zanoni, it's often suspected that Bulwer-Lytton was an occultist or an initiate of some secret society. In fact, the English Rosicrucian Society claimed him, to the surprise and dismay of Bulwer-Lytton himself. This society was founded in 1865 and has no demonstrable link to the original Rosicrucian Brotherhood which in turn has a dubious existence to begin with. Three of the known members of the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia would go on to found the Order of the Golden Dawn in 1888, which would eventually include one Aleister Crowley as a member. But as for Bulwer-Lytton, there's a lot more evidence for his influence on later occultism than occultism on him. Helena Blavatsky, founder of the esoteric school known as Theosophy, and Rudolf Steiner, who founded the offshoot Anthroposophy, took Vril energy to be a real thing. It's been claimed that there was a proto-Nazi Vril society in Germany, notably in the book Morning of the Magicians. Source of this claim is probably an article by an emigre German-American rocket engineer and cryptozoologist named Willie Lay in the magazine Astounding Science Fiction after World War II, which was about pseudoscience in Nazi Germany. Whether the Viril Society existed or not, this has become an influential idea in esoteric neo-Nazi circles, ironically perhaps due to the mourning of the magician's sensationalist portrait of Nazi occultism, where it is connected to the ideas of the black sun, the hollow earth, and Vril-powered flying saucers. But we're going to get into Nazi frogs a bit later. Scientifically, there is no difference between a frog and a toad. We tend to call toads those kinds of frogs that are more land-oriented, with dry and warty skin, Symbolically, though, it's different. The toad is the negative or infernal aspect of the frog, or in Jungian terms, its shadow. Sir tells us that, quote, the toad is the antithesis of the frog as the wasp is of the bee. There are also certain animals whose mission it is to break up the astral light by a process of absorption peculiar to them. There is something fascinating about their gaze. They are the toad and the basilisk. End quote. It's interesting that he makes the connection between the toad and basilisk, which Crowley also makes in Liber 70, rhyming, quote, He has crucified a toad in the basilisk abode, muttering the runes of verse, mad with many a mocking curse. End quote. The basilisk was supposed by ancient Romans and other Europeans to be a king of the serpents, with many deadly attributes, such as killing with its gaze or its breath or the sound of its voice. In his natural history, Pliny the Elder said that it moved not like a snake but upright, and had, quote, a white spot on the head strongly resembling a sort of diadem. It's always depicted with a serpent body, sometimes with wings like a dragon, and sometimes with a bird beak or a head like a rooster, which may be why Chaucer calls it a basilicock in the Canterbury Tales. Basilisks were sometimes said to be hatched from toads' eggs. They could be killed by smelling a weasel, or hearing a rooster crow, or seeing itself in a mirror. But the main legacy of the Basilisk is of a creature with a mesmerizing or fatal gaze. The Toad's legacy may not be so deadly, but they do figure prominently in black magic and mesmerism. The official story told by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints about the origin of their unique scripture, the Book of Mormon, is that it was inscribed on golden plates that were discovered buried underground by the prophet Joseph Smith, the location being revealed to him by an angel named Moroni, who first appeared to him in 1823. An early associate of Smith's named Willard Chase who claimed to have engaged in money-digging expeditions with him told a different story was told a different story by smith he said that a spirit appeared to smith and instructed him to dress in a suit of black clothes and ride a black horse quote demand the book in certain name and after obtaining it he must go directly away and neither lay it down nor look behind him. Smith followed the instructions to the letter, except for the last bit, because, after retrieving the book, which was hidden inside a stone box, he set it down and turned around to make sure nobody had seen him. But upon turning back, the book was gone, and there was instead quote, "something like a toad which soon assumed the appearance of a man and struck him on the side of the head." End quote. Because Smith did not follow all of the instructions, he would have to wait a year to retrieve the plates. According to the testimony of many who knew the Smith family in rural New York, his parents, Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Max Smith, set a precedent for such treasure-digging activities. They were well known for it, and in an infamous passage from the first draft of her dictated history in 1845, Lucy max Smith addressed such charges thus, quote, Let not my reader suppose that because I shall pursue another topic for a season, that we stopped our labor and went at trying to win the faculty of ABRAC, drawing magic circles or soothsaying to the neglect of all kinds of business. We never, during our lives, suffered one important interest to swallow up every other obligation, but whilst we worked with our hands, we endeavored to remember the service and the welfare of our souls." Quote. While LDS Church members construe this passage as a blanket denial of any magical activities, excommunicated Mormon historian D. Michael Quinn, in his book Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview, interprets her as saying that such pursuits never interfered with any of their other work. She was responding to another common charge of laziness against the family. Furthermore, nobody accused the Smiths of, quote, trying to win the faculty of Abrac. They were accused of treasure-digging ceremonies. That's an odd thing to bring up out of nowhere. So what is this faculty of Abrac? Well, this is a ceremonial magic practice. At the time, associated with Freemasonry, but with ancient roots, derived from the magical word abracadabra. In part one of this episode, we discussed Alistair Crowley's slightly altered version of this word, abrahadabra, which he made the magical word of the new Aeon of Horus, the age of the child. The word abracadabra had been used as a magic charm, appearing on talismans in the form of a triangle, consisting of eleven iterations of the word, each with one letter less, so that you have abracadabra on top and just A at the bottom. At the seventh level, and remember that seven is an important magical number, it appears as abrac, thus the faculty of abrac. There's more to say about this, but we will wait for later. There's also more interesting evidence of the Smith family's use of ceremonial magic, but let's leave off this part for now with this epilogue. In the 1980s, a document circulated that was apparently a letter by Martin Harris, of the original three witnesses who testified to having seen the gold plates but in this letter the creature which appeared to smith was neither the angel moroni nor a metamorphosing toad but a white salamander initially some in the church believed it authentic and it had been argued that the white salamander of this tale referred not to the common lizard but to the mythic elemental that was said to live in fire and that this reference was just a symbolic approximation of the angel moroni but this letter turned out to have been the invention of a prolific forger named mark hoffman he was going to sell his document to the church but when his forgery schemes began to go awry hoffman planned to commit three separate murders using pipe bombs. He succeeded with the first two, but the third went off in his own car. Hoffman survived and eventually pleaded guilty to two counts of second degree murder and one count of fraud. He remains in prison in Utah today. In a very strange note that really ought to require more explanation, Sir Lowe's Dictionary of Symbols calls our attention to the 1501 painting The Temptation of St. Anthony by the Dutch master of the fantastic and grotesque Hieronymus Bosch. Near the center of this massive triptych is a strange gathering around a table. There's a pig-faced lute player with an owl on his head. There's an albino woman dressed in all white, and there's a black woman holding a tray. On this tray is what Sirlo describes as a, quote, frog with the head of a very aged human being. The creature is hoisting an egg. It's a weird little guy with pinkish skin and hollow black eyes. Certainly more toad-like, according to the common distinction. Actually, it kind of looks like that baby from the show Dinosaurs. Well, Sir Lowe says that here it represents the highest stage of evolution. Listen to part one for what the Huxleys have said about man, frogs and evolution. Though he doesn't quote her, he credits the insight to Anna Tillard, a German graphologist who studied with Ludwig Klages And Carl Jung. I don't know where she is supposed to have said this or what she meant by it, but surely it is the egg the toad man is holding, or what's in it, and not the man himself that represents the highest evolutionary stage. Perhaps it is the child Horus. The painting is supposed to depict the torments of mind, body, and spirit endured by the desert father saint anthony the great anthony himself is in the very center pointing towards christ who is inside a ruined tower to his left is the scene i just described which one reading of the painting calls a profanatory mass celebrated by demons and priestesses the owl is an allegory of heresy the toad a symbol of witchcraft but what the egg stands for, they do not say. There's another interpretation of this painting that claims that its images relate to the disease called ergotism, known in the Middle Ages as St. Anthony's fire. It's caused by alkaloid ingestion from fungus that grows on rye, barley, or other cereals. You may remember that in the episode called Frogs, we encountered ergot as a possible ingredient in the secret rituals of the ancient Greek Eleusinian mysteries, which were devoted to the grain goddess Demeter. Ergot grows on grains, and chemically it resembles LSD, so certain preparations at the right dosage would cause a similar trip. But ergot poisoning is not a pretty picture, it causes convulsions, diarrhea, psychosis, gangrene, among many other fun symptoms. The monks of the Order of St. Anthony were supposedly very successful in treating the disorder. St. Anthony the Great is often appealed to for severe skin conditions such as shingles and the gangrenous ergotism. Yet there was a completely different saint named Anthony, Anthony of Padua, who is believed to have died of ergot poisoning in 1231. St. Anthony the Great has also been a favorite subject of painters since the late Renaissance, appealing especially to the very weird strain in Dutch painting represented by Bosch, as well as modern surrealists like Max Ernst and Remedios Varro. This is in part because of the fantastic nature of the events of his life, which have the devil sending demon after demon to tempt him, and stories such as his wandering in search of another hermit while encountering figures out of Greek myth such as satyrs and centaurs. In Bosch's rendering, we may see the sufferings of ergotism superimposed on the traditional temptation of Saint Anthony theme. There's a large fruit that could be a mandrake apple, and mandrake root was used as a protection against ergotism as well, as an anesthetic for the amputations that it often made necessary. Of course, mandrake root also caused hallucinations of its own. There's at least a couple of other amphibians scattered about in Bosch's Temptation of St. Anthony. The lower right panel, there's a fat demon-like toad with what looks like butterfly wings with a bowl into which what is probably wine is being poured holding open a red tent to reveal a naked woman inside a hollow tree. Opposite, on the upper left, we see Anthony again identified by the Tau Cross. We discussed this symbol in relation to Saint Francis in our episode on the Fool, but Anthony is probably even more associated with that cross, which will usually appear in any artwork depicting him. Here he is praying while being carried in the air by demons, laying on his back on top of a winged frog who is splayed out in a crucifix-like pose. Yeah, so remember that crucified frog from the beginning of the last episode? Well, you probably didn't think that was going to come back up again, but uh, it will. A lot. In 2008, a sculpture of a crucified frog by the German artist Martin Kippenberger, exhibited at a museum in Bozen, Italy, was condemned by Pope Benedict as blasphemous. The sculpture stood three feet high, the frog's tongue hanging out, holding in its left hand an egg, and in its right, a mug of beer. The figure is entirely green, even the loincloth and mug, Except for the egg, which is white. There's that egg again. The piece was called To Erst Diffusa, or First the Feet. When local clerics and politicians called for the piece's removal, the curators distributed accompanying flyers to explain the work. Originally produced as part of a series in 1990, it was said to be a portrayal of the artist's profound personal crisis involving alcoholism. I'm a little puzzled as to why this would necessarily make it less blasphemous, because it would then put his own suffering on par with that of Jesus, but it still doesn't explain the choice of a frog, either. Was Kippenberger trying to be provocative? It's possible. In 1986, he bought a gas station in Brazil and renamed it the Martin Bormann Gas Station. Workers were actually required to answer phone calls with Tankstelle Martin Bormann. That means Martin Bormann Gas Station. Bormann was a Nazi party official, if you didn't know. And Kippenberger has been called a neo-Nazi by an art critic named like this name, Wolfgang Max Faust. Nevertheless, I don't think the idea of Christ symbolized by a frog is inherently offensive. It's in a way appropriate. The frog lives in two worlds, land and water. Christ has two natures, man and God. The sacrifice he made to defeat death and redeem mankind from sin is the single great leap that allows our souls to cross from this world to the world to come. At the same time, I get why people were put off by the image. Something about a bright green cartoon-like frog just seems irreverent. But that too, I believe, is appropriate. It is quite irreverent—a joke, even, perhaps—to suffer and die, and then for no explainable reason be suddenly not dead three days later. From 2004 to 2007, there was an animated show on Comedy Central called Drawn Together. You probably don't remember it, because it wasn't very good. This is a parody of those reality TV shows where a bunch of narcissists and drama queens who may or may not be celebrities have to live in a house together. Except that in this cartoon, they were thinly disguised superheroes and other famous cartoon characters. kind of show that makes fun of the entertainment industry yet is just as debased and lazily cynical as that industry. Anyway, there's a episode in the second season called Little Orphan Hero, where all the stars decide to run a suicide hotline for some reason. But most of them soon get distracted from this business, and in a scene that's completely unrelated to the main storyline, starting exactly at 11 minutes and 9 seconds into the episode, wink wink, we get this...
1: doing? You are supposed to be on the suicide phones. Woo-hoo! We found something much more fun. A dead bloated frog in the storm drain. At first we had a tea party with it. But now we're worshipping it as a god. Some poor fool with no arms and legs called and now he's going off himself if we don't stop him. What are you deaf? We're playing with frog god. Fine! Once again, Foxy's gonna have to clean up y'all's mess. Frog God, idiots. Everybody knows that Santa Amanda Jesus is the only true God.
0: You can't see it, of course, but Frog God is nailed to two planks of wood. Not a traditional T-shaped cross, but an X-shape that would fit a squat, toad-like amphibian. And there's the same lolling tongue and popping eyes as in the Kippenberger piece. By the next scene, frog god is gone, having dried up in the sun and been eaten by the neighbor's dog. For some reason, frog crucifixions really ramped up in the 21st century. Or is it the Aeon of Horace? The Kippenberger scandal was more or less repeated in the United States in a Penn State Abington art gallery in 2017. As part of a program fittingly called Transmedia Narratives, a piece was displayed called Christus Renae," which is Latin for Christ Frogs. But there was only one Christ Frog, made of clay, and nailed to a seven-foot-tall cross, made from railroad tracks, with a barbed-wire crown of thorns, and gold-leaf blood dripping from its wounds. The artist was a 34-year-old Air Force vet named Day Smith, a Christian who said he was surprised by the backlash. There's supposed to be an overall narrative context relating to the other pieces in the show, but this is all mostly lost because all the stories you can find now are about the big crucified frog. The charge against this one was led not by any church officials, but a sociology professor named, I swear you can't make this stuff up. Karen, Karen Halman. Professor Halnan organized a teach-in protest against the exhibit, calling it hate speech, an anti-Christian mockery masquerading as art, and compared it to hanging a swastika or hanging a transsexual from a rope. You can find the flyer for her teach-in online, which I will read from now. Quote, Two Penn State Abington professors will discuss the meanings of frogs and Jesus from professional and personal experiences, from biology frog experiments to sociological understanding of the sacred and the profane, from experiences being a Catholic Christian and a conservative Jew. Together, Dr. Besser and Dr. Karen will seriously explore these and other important questions. Was Jesus ever a frog? What does it mean to portray Jesus as a crucified frog? How do crucified frogs relate to biological experimentation? How do frogs, if at all, relate to Christian and Jewish religious texts? As the sociologist must ask, what is really going on here? In this case, with the crucified frog complete with crown of thorns, the woodland first floor art gallery, how, if at all, does the crucified frog relate to, quote, no place for hate, end quote? Good questions, indeed.
2: Yes, select again. Bible for 400, please. During the second plague, these amphibians came out of the water. Stephen, what are frogs? Right. What are frogs?
0: Now, is Professor Hellman a lefty or a righty? She deployed every rhetorical trick in the SJW arsenal, claiming that her subjective feeling of offense overrode any possible intention of the Speech Act. But she did so in the name of a traditional mainstream faith. Hellman, it seems, was a Marxist in addition to being Catholic. Very helpfully for us, she had made national headlines once before when she was arrested on an airline flight from Nicaragua to Miami. She suddenly announced to all and sundry that the United States had declared war on Venezuela, called Hugo Chavez a hero for nationalizing its oil, and then lit a cigarette on the plane. Sorry for going on a tangent here, as if it weren't all tangents, but I find Professor Hellman a pretty amusing character. After the incident, she gave an interview with Philadelphia Magazine. That's just full of little gems. She said her act was civil disobedience because the U.S. was trying to take out Chavez by giving him cancer. It's my opinion, she said in an interview after the incident, and Fidel agrees with me. As in Castro, the interviewer interrupts, yes, Fidel agrees with me that the CIA had some involvement in giving him cancer, and so he died very sadly. End quote. When the interviewer suggests that lighting a cigarette on a plane is tantamount to yelling about a bomb, which admittedly is uh, overdramatic, she asks if it was such a big security threat, why did she have a lighter on the plane? And she continues quote, Listen, the point is, I am a sociologist and I live in an intellectual world. A sociologist always thinks in terms of symbols, and every revolutionary I know smokes. It was identifying with the revolutionary cause. And then beyond that, it is a symbol that the United States is a smoking gun. The action was necessary. They are going to kill many more people, end quote. But you know, most people just aren't sophisticated when it comes to reading symbols. I could not be more sympathetic, and at this point I confess to developing a fondness for this train wreck of a woman who is not wrong, at least in spirit, about U.S. foreign policy. So, RIP Dr. Karen, because she died in January 2018, less than a year after her teach-in protest at PSU. I found some obituaries, but they don't list the cause of death. Perhaps it was the CIA, and perhaps it was the frog god. Philadelphia Magazine notes that her academic publications included, quote, Women's Agency in Hysteria and Its Treatment, and The Power of 420. Of course, it wasn't just Dr. Karen that took offense to the PSU show. The Daily Stormer published an article on it, and in their forthright style, titled it, quote, Evil Negroid Artist Makes Malevolent Crucified Frog Sculpture, end quote. The premier website of the alt-right took a position pretty similar to Dr. Karen, albeit with the usual gratuitous racism added. But for the Stormers, the frog didn't represent Jesus. It represented Keck. To wit, quote, As with all things that the forces of darkness bring upon us, the divine will of the frog god manifests with a message for his trolls. There is a deeper meaning here or should I say memeing, look, the Jews are controlling Trump to make him throw his base under the bus, just like the Jew made Pontius Pilate crucify Jesus. So kek on the cross means that he has been sacrificed, but will be born again for the redemption of the alt-right. Or something. I don't know. Either way, there's some cosmic tier stuff going on out there. End quote. Apparently they were unhappy with Trump for something or other at the time, so the frog sculpture appeared to them as a symbol of Trump as Pontius Pilate crucifying the frogs. The Daily Stormer's readership, like the audience for T.H. Huxley's frog dissection lecture, looked upon it and thought, the frog is us. There was, according to the article, quote, a new meme religion rising up around Keck's worship. And this was unacceptable for the forces behind this artwork, by which they didn't mean the artist. Forgive them, Keck, for they know not what they do. Well, all this cosmic tear stuff requires some unpacking. For some listeners this is all very well trod territory, and I apologize if so, but bear with me while I explain all this talk about kek and meaning. <laughs> In November of 2016, Donald Trump was elected president. That much I think we're all on the same page about. Almost no major pollster or media figure predicted this. Even right now, less than a year since he's been out of office, it seems like a weird thing to have happened. Did it happen? Did we all dream this? Well, whether you liked him or not, you have to admit that a significant portion of the class of people whose job it is to deal out ideas in this society really, really did not like that this happened. And at least a few of these people went kind of nuts publicly over it. It It's a little more than this, actually. Within four years of his administration, people on both the right and left were wondering If there was going to be some kind of civil war, or if we were already in it, you might call this chaos. But back in 2016 and 17, the main issue was figuring out how Trump got elected. The predominant narrative seemed to be about the white working class and how Democrats lost it by choosing the very unlikable establishment figure Hillary Clinton instead of the more left-populist Bernie Sanders. Meanwhile, Donald Trump ran a populist campaign from the right. I don't want to get into how accurate this is, but that was the story in the major key. The minor key version was that Trump had the support of what had come to be called the alt-right, essentially a rebranding of white nationalists, fascists, Nazis, etc. But so what? Ronald Reagan and George Bush had far-right supporters, too. Appealing to racists and nationalists in a subtle way has been a necessary part of Republican strategy for decades. Perhaps it was that Trump appealed to them to the exclusion of more moderate conservatives, which might be true, but that's not really it either. No, it has to do with something more occult. And the occult narrative goes like this. In the words of the media-crowned voice of the alt-right, Richard Spencer, we memed Donald Trump into office. Just take a moment to appreciate the strangeness of the fact that in the months and years after Trump's election, mainstream media sources were discussing the esoteric subject of chaos magic. Hell, Hillary Clinton was publicly denouncing a cartoon frog as a symbol of evil like it was Baphomet or something. These were strange days, friends. In researching this story, I've relied on two sources mainly. On the more liberal side is Gary Lockman's book, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. While on the more conservative side is a series of blog posts by John Michael Greer called Keck Wars. And I want to personally thank Daniel at Alacrities from Twitter for pointing me to Greer. What I like about each of these sources is that they take the magical aspect very seriously. Each have their flaws, however. Greer is more sympathetic toward the alt-right and insists it was more about populism and annoying the establishment than it was about racism, which he says is mostly media disinformation meant to stave off the elite nightmare of, quote, a rapprochement between working-class white people and working-class people of color. He says that, quote, magic is the politics of the excluded, using a word straight out of the Charles Fort lexicon. Accepting the fact that there is a lot of media disinformation and caricatures and that there was a lot of trolling, but this seems like a bit of wishful thinking to me. To accept this, you'd have to believe that uh, Richard Spencer, for instance, wanted such working-class unity, and my imagination doesn't stretch that far. For his part, Lockman's Dark Star makes some factual errors, like claiming that Spencer gave a Nazi salute in his infamous Hail Victory speech after Trump won, which he didn't though some in his audience did. It's also a little overly focused on Spencer and the Russia connections, which somewhat reflects the standard liberal narrative about these events. The rising of the frog god during the Donald Trump campaign came about because of the coincidence of a few internet-based oddities. On the 4chan group poll, the first was the ironic adoption of the character Pepe the Frog from Matt Fury's Boy's Club comic. Fury had no connection to the alt-right and was always dismayed at this association. The original iconic image was of Pepe with his pants down, joyfully urinating while saying, Feels good, man. Fury literally took the name from Pepe. He summed it all up in an interview thus, quote, my Pepe philosophy is simple. Feels good, man. It is based on the meaning of the word Pepe. To go Pepe. I find complete joy in physically, emotionally and spiritually serving Pepe and his friends through comics. Each comic is sacred and the compassion of my readers transcends any differences, the pain and fear of feeling good. End quote. It feels good to relieve yourself, not just of bodily fluids, but of thoughts and ideas forbidden by the official culture, of all the mean, resentful thoughts you have living in a chaotic and careless culture. Not everyone has such easy access to racist jouissance, but online discourse is always opening up new avenues of cruelty, new lines of flight. And the more you think you're above it, the more ideology has you in its snares. Anyway, the second coincidence was the word kek. This came about from some kind of malfunction in the game of World of Warcraft that displayed that word whenever you typed in the message lol or laugh out loud. So kek came to mean lol in other contexts. Coincidentally, this is roughly what the word does mean in Korean. Actually it's a Korean onomatopoeia for laughter written as ke. Now, we've seen this used as an onomatopoeia before. This is what Aristophanes uses for the sound made by his frog chorus in his play The Frogs, which we discussed in the first Frogs episode. Or not exactly, it goes Brek-kekeks, quacks. quacks. It's basically an ancient Greek equivalent of ribbit. But the kek sound is definitely in there, and it suggests that the frogs are also laughing, not merely croaking or singing. And it fits. It is a comedy, and they do play a mocking role. You may recall the prominent place of mockery in Crowley's frog ritual. If you think about that sound, you can easily shift it to the English automatopoeia for laughter through the shift in Grimm's Law we mentioned in the previous episode, by which abracadabra became abrahadabra, where a voiceless stop becomes a voiceless fricative, so it becomes he-he-he or ha-ha-ha it gets even weirder than that. Cicada Song, are you listening? Aristophanes' frog chorus is quoted in James Joyce's bewildering masterpiece, Finnegan's Wake, on the second page. The lines go, quote, What clashes here of wills, gen, won'ts, Oyster gods, gaggin' fishy gods, Breckick, keckick, 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 Coax, coax, coax passage in which they occur invokes religious and racial conflict. Oyster gods and fishy gods sound a little bit like Ostrogoths and Visigoths, the Germanic tribes that sacked Rome, as well as invoking different kinds of pagan animal gods set at strife. It's often pointed out that Joyce slightly alters the frog's quote, so that it can be abbreviated KKK, which may reference the Ku Klux Klan. The reference is strengthened in the next sentence, which speaks of the white voice of Hootie Head. That certainly sounds like a description of the KKK. But it specifically refers to the White Boys, a secret organization of Irish agrarian agitators from the 18th century who wore white smocks and conducted violent night raids in the cause of tenant farmer land rights. They were class agitators, not race agitators. But of course, it's hard to not also think of the alt-right and its Keck obsession. There's a lot more to be said about this, but if you're intrigued by this stuff, go look up a blog called Group Name for Grape Juice. I read a post titled, How Finnegan's Wake Predicts and Obsolesces Esoteric Keckism. I don't endorse everything there, but it's a fascinating bog, uh, I mean blog. Now I have to mention one more connection here. In November of 1968, the show Star Trek aired one of its most controversial episodes called Plato's Stepchildren, in which the Enterprise encounters a planet of telekinetic aliens that have discovered classical Western Earth culture, and they're basically LARPing as ancient Greeks. There's a scene in which a dwarf performs the chorus from Aristophanes' Frogs. The legend about this episode is that it featured the first interracial kiss between Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura, but actually it wasn't the first aired, and the episode was controversial, mainly because audiences found the sadism and torture in it disturbing. Anyway, back to 4chan. The third synchronicity had to do with the eight-digit numbers that got randomly assigned to posts. Great significance was assigned to posts with repeated digits. In popular numerology, these are known as angel numbers, which are messages from the divine realm. On poll, a repeated digit was known as a get. After the channers rallied around Donald Trump as their preferred candidate, people started noticing that Trump-related posts had a larger than normal amount of gets. On June 19th, Twenty sixteen someone typed Trump will win in response to an unrelated series of posts. And the number that posted was eight sevens in a row. I think even people unfamiliar with magic know that seven is the lucky number. After all, triple seven is a jackpot on the slot machine. Blackjack. The goal is to get twenty-one, which is the sum of three sevens, and so on. Seven is a highly magical number, a perfect and holy number in the Jewish tradition. But the fact that it was eight sevens is significant as well, for a reason we'll get to momentarily. So what emerged out of 4chan was like a compound synchronicity that resulted in associating Trump and Pepe. Sealing the whole thing was the discovery of an ancient deity called Keck, that was portrayed as a man with the head of a frog, just like Pepe. Somebody also found an ancient Egyptian frog statue, which was misidentified as Keck, when it was in fact Heket, a a frog goddess. The hieroglyph of her name looks rather weirdly like a frog sitting in front of a computer screen with a braided coil like magic swirling energy on the other side of the screen. It looked like the icon of being online. And so the frog movement was born. The cult of Keck. In recent years, there's been mutations and variations on the original Pepe. You still see a lot of frog avatars online. Keck morphed into a whole imaginary country, Kekistan. But the synchronistic high weirdness of that time seems to be gone now, as well as a lot of the playful absurdity of it all. Both John Michael Greer and Gary Lockman place what the Chanters were doing in the quite recent tradition of chaos magic. In Greer's words, quote, an approach to magic that treats gods, spirits, and other magical beings as wholly imaginary constructs used by human beings to focus their innate magical energies, end quote. You might say that it's a kind of pragmatism that suspends the question of what is real and focuses on what works. Or you could go still further and say that it is a kind of postmodernism that says nothing is true, everything is permitted. Much of chaos magic originates in the work of the artist Austin Osmond Speer, who died in 1956, although the movement as such emerged in the 1970s. Politically, chaos magic has been most associated with anarchism, which seems obvious enough, but the pro-Trump movement, and certainly the alt-right, has often been branded as fascist. Horseshoes are supposed to be magic, right? Anyway, Greer claims that chaos magic suited the channers because internet memes function very well as sigils. That is, a symbol that is charged with magical power through the will of its creator, and because it's easy to understand concepts meant that more people could participate in the magical working. It's like the punk rock of occultism. You don't need to be highly trained, you can learn it in a day, and then go forth with a few chords and create chaos. Late in the election, the poll frogs focused their meme magic on the goal of making Hillary Clinton have a public collapse. There had been rumors which they helped spread that she had some disease she was hiding from the public on september 11th of 2016 that's right 9 11 hillary clinton collapsed in public leaving a memorial service at ground zero she stumbled and had to be helped into her van by secret service the public explanation was that she was lightheaded because of the heat What made it an especially sweet victory was that Clinton had just a couple days earlier given her infamous Basket of Deplorables speech denouncing half of Trump's supporters as bigots, and then her website posted an explanation of the Pepe meme as a hate symbol. This was, of course, another victory, free publicity, and meme magic multiplied, as the Nazi frog won rent-free space in the heads of millions of liberals. The other weird thing that happened that day was an anonymous posting of an obscure pop song from 1986 called Shaladay by an Italian band called P-E-P-E, supposedly an acronym for Point Emerging Probably Entering. The band name was really just a label for the song's writer, Manuel Pepe. On the cover of the record, a smirking cartoon frog holding what appears to be a magic wand on top of an American flag. The label that it was released on was called Magic Sound. This was taken as a sign, a blessing from the frog god. But the wave of synchronicity the online Trumpist vanguard was surfing would soon turn gnarly The next project was an attempt to capture the French presidential election for Marine Le Pen and the Front National, which failed, as did several similar endeavors. When Richard Spencer was famously cold-cocked while giving an interview on the street, he was wearing a Pepe button and was actually in the middle of explaining Pepe's meaning. By the time the frog crucifixion I already described came around, The Kekists were in a sour mood. In February of 2017, witches around the world cast a mass binding spell on Trump, a backlash to the Kekist meme magic of the previous years. And after this, Trump seemed to have difficulty getting any legislation passed. Fast forward to January 6th, 2021 where protesters stormed the Capitol Hill building in an attempt to disrupt Joe Biden's electoral victory from being formalized in what Trump supporters believed was a stolen election. It's been reported by their ideological opponents that Shaladay was blaring from the speakers. If so, it seems like an attempt to recapture the magic of 2016. But the spirit of Keck was not with them that day. John Michael Greer says that the problem with this kind of magic is that, quote, many chaos magicians, in fact, treat the universe as a blank slate in which human beings are the only active presences. As a result, very few chaos magicians learn how to work safely with gods and spirits who aren't products of human minds, end quote. The older forms of occultism, according to him, respected boundaries and had protections built into their practices. Long story short, you got a lot of people messing around with magical techniques, which they had very little knowledge or control over. And this is especially bad if Greer says, quote, something other than human took an interest in the situation, end quote. But what other than human thing might this be? Kek is often identified as a god of chaos and darkness, but it's actually more complicated than this. Kek was one member of a group of eight gods, consisting of four male-female pairs. There was Nun and Nunet, known as the Abyss, He and Hehet, called Unlimitedness, Kek and Keket, or darkness, and Amun and Amunet, or hiddenness. Depiction of the Ogdoad varied somewhat over the years, but the classical image is of the male as frog-headed and the female as snake-headed. These were collectively known as the Ogdoad, meaning the Eightfold. That were worshiped in Hermopolis, a provincial capital of the old kingdom of Egypt. Hermopolis, as you may have guessed, was the Greek name of the city, which was called the Egyptians Kamenu, literally eight city. So the number eight is quite strongly connected to this grouping. What is the symbol most associated with modern chaos magic? The chaos star, consisting of eight arrows arranged in a radial pattern. This is a very interesting symbol. You usually see it in a two-dimensional form, but imagine for a second a three-dimensional version. First, picture a map standing up, facing you, with four directions, north, south, east, west. Now, picture an identical map laying flat, horizontally, that bisects the first map. Now you have eight directions. Imagine those eight directions as eight arrows with a small sphere at their center. And you have a chaos star. Chaotic because it is capable of moving in any direction. It's only appropriate to this popular and postmodern form of magic the invention of this symbol is credited to a sci-fi and fantasy novelist, Michael Moorcock. Began as just a doodle, but Moorcock says, quote, I have been told that it is an ancient symbol of chaos, and if it is, then it confirms a lot of theories about the race mind, end quote. By race mind here, he means the human race and its collective unconscious, but it's a curious phrase in the present context. The star also may be prefigured by the Eight of Wands card in Alistair Crowley and Lady Frida Harris' Thoth deck, in which the card is named Swiftness. Accelerationism, anyone? Now, what chaos means for the Ogdoad needs a little explication, and for this I've relied mostly on an article called "Hermopolitan Ogdoad on the Henadology blog by a scholar of polytheism, Edward P. Butler, who is on Twitter, by the way, and he used to follow me, and I must have said something that bugged him, or who knows, because he unfollowed, but whatever. When we imagine chaos now, we typically imagine a state in which order has broken down. In physics terms, chaos is equivalent to a high degree of entropy. But the ancients viewed chaos somewhat differently. It was a state of things prior to creation, pre-cosmic rather than a-cosmic, a state in which all opposites coexisted in undifferentiation. The alchemists identified chaos as the prima materia or prime matter, Which was recreated in the initial negredo or black stage of the alchemical process, in which all was reduced to a massa confusa or confused mass, which would then give rise to its opposite, the albedo or white stage in which all purities are washed away. In psychological terms, the unconscious is the closest to chaos, but strictly speaking, chaos precedes or transcends even the unconscious. Another name for the Ogdoad was the infinites. In one view, the Ogdoad are agents of cosmogenesis. They created light and gave birth to the sun, created Atum. And yet, as Siegfried Marenz says, they are, quote, concerned with cosmic matter, not with organic life. In another view, they are more the material of cosmogenesis than its agents. Let's quote a highly relevant paragraph by Butler. The role of the Ogdoad as transitional creators or proto-demiurges is often expressed in the symbolism of a primordial egg or lotus, which is their proximate creation, an intermediate creation or matrix of transformation, a vessel in which the subsequent stages of cosmogenesis can, as it were, incubate. The lotus or egg may be created by the Ogdoad, or merely fertilized by them, or it may simply embody the moment at which they came to be in a determinate place, this determinacy being in itself a stage in the cosmogenesis." Quote. So maybe this is the source of that odd egg, we saw in Bosch's Temptation of St. Anthony and Kippenberger's Feet First, the highest evolutionary stage as a return of the first evolutionary stage. Rather than being simply gods of chaos, the Ogdoad can be seen as symbolizing the transition from chaos to formation. Returning then to the meme magicians of 4chan, we can see that their desire to sow chaos had as its goal the creation of a new kind of order, a nationalist one as opposed to the globalist one that the Washington Consensus has aided for decades. It's the same pattern as the move from the Negreto to the Albedo in alchemy. Albedo is doubly meaningful because for the more racist end of the MAGA movement, the goal was indeed a pure white country. Trump was the agent of chaos aided by the ancient frog god Keck, or maybe instead Trump and the alt-right were merely the stepping stone to an even higher level of globalist neoliberalism, agents provocateur that would provide the state its excuse for putting the boot down on its growing opposition. John Michael Greer reminds us that when you have a bunch of amateurs messing around with magic, you may get a lot more than you bargained for. Edward Butler states that, quote, it is a commonplace of Egyptian theology that deities recapitulate the conditions of their own emergence. End quote. What, in the end, was the accomplishment, good or ill, of the Trump administration? It's an honest question, and I don't have an answer. I'd like to briefly mention another pop culture occurrence of the frog god. It seems to predict Trump and the cult of Keck, an odd collectible card game produced by Steve Jackson Games called Illuminati New World Order from all the way back in 1994. It was inspired by Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea's 1975 series of novels called Illuminatus. It's an underground classic, the novel that is, and it may have been the first pop culture use of the idea of the Illuminati as a secret society running the world. The idea had been floating around in right-wing circles for a while, but what Wilson and Shea did was collect conspiracy theories and mix them up with Pulp Fiction from Lovecraft stories and James Bond, occult and New Age ideas along with paranoia about the CIA and FBI that was rife in new-left counterculture. Wilson had been an editor of Playboy magazine and claimed to have first gotten the idea from crank letters that the magazine received. It should be noted that Wilson was an acquaintance or accomplice of one Carrie Thornley, the inventor of the parody religion, or PSYOP if you like, Discordianism. Discordianism as well also somewhat prefigures the Kekistan, frog god, mean magic, joke religion sort of thing. Thornley had also not only been a radar operator, along with Lee Harvey Oswald in the Marine Corps, but actually wrote a novel inspired by Oswald called The Idle Warriors prior to... JFK's assassination. Another rabbit hole. Anyway, the premise of Illuminatus was, as Wilson said, all these nuts are right and every single conspiracy they complain about really exists. But it's a burlesque really and the end result is not a universal belief in all conspiracy theories but universal skepticism. People on both the left and right have called Wilson, who went on to write many fiction and nonfiction books, On the same subjects, a disinformation agent. We may have to go down the Robert Anton Wilson rabbit hole someday, but we'll have to just hop over it for now. The Illuminati card game does something similar to the books by turning what for many is deadly serious politics into a game you can just play around with. The card that mainly interests us here is called The Frog God. Its look is somewhat Egyptian, with a multicolored necklace, triangular pendant and two magical staves, it's holding with crossed arms, it's sitting on a clamshell throne and being worshipped by a man wearing a gold colored suit. Countering the Egyptian look is a thong. It looks like it's made from the stripes of the American flag. The description on the card seems to speak in a distinctly Kakistani. Or perhaps Discordian accent. Quote, the idols are both frightening and silly, and no one knows why the masters keep them around. You may interfere with a privileged attack on either side. No other players may interfere unless they use special cards. End quote. Other prophetic looking cards are the charismatic leader and a card called Enough is Enough that features a yelling man who to me at least looks an awful lot like Donald Trump. Well, from Christ frogs to Egyptian chaos frogs, I'm not sure we're closer to knowing who the frog god is. Nevertheless, I'm going to add another possibility, that he is Christ and the devil at once. In 1913, the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung broke off in bitter acrimony his professional and personal relationship with Sigmund Freud, whom he had worked with intensively for six years. He soon began keeping notebooks which detailed what has been variously described as fantasies, daydreams, visions. active imaginings. These were to become known as the black books and represented Jung's deepest encounter with the unconscious, out of which many of his later distinctive psychological ideas derive. One of the earliest visions was in October of 1913 when he saw the lowlands between the North Sea and the Swiss Alps fill up with blood. World War I broke out within a year. The most intense period of visions was between 1915 and 1917, but continued sporadically until as late as 1930. Some have described this period as involving a full-blown psychotic episode, or a creative illness. But it should be noted that, while he was furiously composing the black books at night, he was continuing his medical practice during the day, seeing patients and lecturing, even serving as an officer in the Swiss Army during the war. Not only was he describing his visions or imaginings in text form, but he began composing an illustrated calligraphic version as well, something like a medieval illuminated manuscript This version is called The Red Book, which remained unpublished until the year 2009. I have not fully explored The Red Book myself, but here's a sampling of contents. Jung wanders through wastelands, in forests and mountains and seas, in caverns beneath the earth and volcanic craters. His spirit guide is an ancient white bearded magician with wings and bull horns named Philemon. He meets a woman who turns out to be the personification of his own soul. He meets a one eyed dying tramp. He meets the devil. He meets the Germanic hero Siegfried and murders him. He meets ancient Greek chthonic deities known as the Kabiri, who are really subterranean gnomes. He meets an axe-wielding god named Izubar, lamed by the terrible magic of science, and whom Jung reduces to the size of an egg and places in his pocket. He meets the disembodied shade of Christ. He encounters two enormous snakes entwined in battle, one white and one black, the latter of which attempts to crush Jung as he is contemplating a cross. He is confined in a madhouse. He plays Parseval in Klingsor's magic garden. On the orders of a gnome, he severs the knot of his own brain with a sword. He visits hell, where he devours the liver of a little girl. He dangles between heaven and earth like the hanged man of the tarot. This all reads like a wild kind of fantasy novel, one influenced by Wagner, Nietzsche, and Freud. There's some evidence Jung thought of this as a kind of new scripture. In fact, the short excerpt which was published during Jung's life takes the form of a Gnostic scripture, titled Seven Sermons to the Dead, published in 1916, and attributed not to Jung but to Basilides, a second century Gnostic teacher from Alexandria, Egypt. In Seven Sermons, we learn of a god that men have forgotten, one which the real life Basilides did speak of called Abraxas, who unites good and evil, God and the devil. Had the Pleroma a being, Abraxas would be its manifestation. Hard to know is the deity of Abraxas. Abraxas is the sun, and at the same time the eternally sucking gorge of the void, the belittling and dismembering devil. The power of Abraxas is twofold. But ye see it not, because for your eyes the warring opposites of this power are extinguished. What the God's Son speaketh is life, what the devil speaketh is death. But Abraxas speaketh that hallowed and accursed word which is life and death at the same time. Abraxas begetteth truth and lying, good and evil, light and darkness, in the same word and in the same act. Wherefore, Abraxas is terrible. Abraxas is the world, its becoming and passing. In this world is man Abraxas, the creator and destroyer of his own world. The origins of Abraxas are obscure. For Basilides, Abraxas was the grand archon or princeps of the cosmos, which consisted of 365 heavens or spheres. Clearly meant to mirror the number of days in a solar year. The original name was likely Abrasax but became Abraxas through corruptions and translations of Greek texts. There's no consensus on the origin or etymology of the name. Its seven letters may represent the seven classical planets. There's a magical hermeneutic in which the letters of the alphabet are given numerical value and finding hidden meanings in words and connections between words of the same value. For Hebrew this is called gematria while for Greek it's called isopsephy The numerical value of Abraxas in Greek is 365. As this name which may be the origin of the abracadabra magical formula I spoke of earlier in relation to Aleister Crowley and the Smith family. It's worth mentioning that 1916 was not only the year that Jung published anonymously the Seven Sermons to the Dead, but also the year that Crowley performed his Cross of a Frog ritual. Abraxas was usually depicted as having the head of a rooster or sometimes a lion. The body of a man, And serpents for legs. He carries a whip in one hand and a shield in another. Recall that the dreadful basilisk also combined the rooster and the serpent. This rather intimidating image can be found on various magical gemstones and amulets from the ancient world. The Jungian and Gnostic scholar Stefan Huller interprets the symbolism of Abraxas thus. Quote, "The god is often mounted on a chariot drawn by four white horses rushing along at great speed. The sun and moon shine overhead as if indicating that the polar opposites of night and day, silver and gold, feminine and masculine, feminine and masculine come to an equilibrated come to an equilibrated state of dynamic union." within this powerful symbolic figure. The head of the rooster symbolizes vigilant wakefulness and is related to both the human heart and to universal heart, the sun, the rising of which is invoked by the matutinal clarion call of the Chanticleer. The human torso is the embodiment of the principle of logos or articulated thought, which is regarded as the unique power of the human being. The legs, shaped like snakes, indicate prudence, whereby the dynamic rulership of universal being governs its own all-powerful energies. The shield held in the right hand is symbolic of wisdom, the great protector of all divine warriors. The whip in the left hand denotes the relentless, driving power of life that spurs all existence on. The four white horses drawing the chariot represent the tetramorphic forces whereby the universal libido or psychic energy expresses itself, called the four ethers of the power of the sun, the four elements of earth, water, fire, and air, and in Jungian psychological terms, the four functions of human consciousness, sensation, feeling, thinking, and intuition. Magical practices invoking Abraxas were denounced by the church father Irenaeus, and the Catholic Church ultimately branded Abraxas a demon, along with other pagan gods. For Jung, Abraxas was a new post-Christian god image for Western man. In the traditional conception, evil was either some outside force opposing an entirely good god, or else a pure negation with no existence in itself, whereas Jung believed that evil had positive existence and had to be acknowledged as an aspect of God. This is a way of solving the classic problem of how evil exists in a world created by an entirely good and all-powerful deity. A world such as this could only be explained if God and the devil were one and the same. Or, as Tom Waits said, you know there ain't no devil, only God when he's drunk. Heller explains this idea by asking us to picture, instead of a line with good at one end and evil on the other, a circle where moving in one direction inevitably moves you in the opposite direction. This is actually an important Jungian principle which he calls antiodromia. An extreme turns into its opposite. You might say that Jung had a horseshoe theory of good and evil. Okay. But, does this provide us with a satisfactory moral theory? Traditional religion urges us away from Satan and towards God. What shall we do in the face of Abraxas? Perform acts of charity and kindness on Monday? And commit rape and murder on Tuesday? This is pretty much the question asked by the hero of Hermann Hesse's novel Demian, which was published in 1919. If you're a little intimidated by Jung's corpus, this short work of fiction would actually be a good introduction to Jung's ideas. Hesse had been seeing a Jungian psychoanalyst for two years before he wrote the book, which is a kind of Gnostic Bildungsroman, in which a young man named Emil Sinclair, also the pseudonym under which Hesse published it, leaves his comfortable and orderly bourgeois Christian home, under the tutelage of a preternaturally wise young man named Demian, who teaches him about the god Abraxas, who is god and Satan and contains both the luminous and the dark world. The famous quote from Demian, which appeared on the band Santana's second album, Abraxas, comes from Demian's comment on a painting Sinclair makes, inspired by one of his dreams of a bird bursting out of its egg. The bird fights its way out of the egg. The egg is the world. Who would be born must first destroy a world. The bird flies to God. That God's name is Abraxas. We see here the perennial Gnostic theme of the soul breaking through the constraints of the physical universe. What looks like destruction, like something evil, in other words, is really just birth pains, and in the larger picture can be seen as creation. The First World War is widely seen as a fatal catastrophe for European tradition by being the first full-scale industrial war, by ending the Habsburg-dominated Austro-Hungarian Empire and tilting power towards the liberal capitalist Anglo-American world. By the seeming irrationality of its bloodbath, which dealt a blow to both traditional Christian faith and enlightenment reason, etc, etc, Jung's red book visions were initiated by an image of blood which might be seen as a premonition of World War I. Hess's Demian ends also with the arrival of the war, its famous destroyed egg could possibly be interpreted as the Western tradition that died, or began to die, in the trenches. This period also produced some famous pessimistic masterpieces, such as Oswald Spengler's two-volume Decline of the West. Spengler actually conceived and drafted volume one in the first few years prior to the war, but didn't publish it until 1918, right at the end of the war. After some initially unfavorable reviews, the book eventually struck a chord with people and became a runaway bestseller. The second volume appeared in 1922, the same year as T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, with its vision of Western tradition reduced to fragments, while also referencing contemporary culture like ragtime jazz. With the publication of James Joyce's novel, Ulysses, also in that year, modernism had definitively arrived. You could see Jung and Hesse as representing a more optimistic take on this period, finding creation amid the destruction. But back to Demian. The answer to Sinclair's question of why not simply commit evil acts, if this is the nature of God, is given that this would be as false to the self, to the unique inner destiny of the individual, just as much as if one merely tried to outwardly conform to a superficial morality. Ethics, in this view, can only be becoming what one is and remaining true to one's daemon, the higher self of the Gnostic and Neoplatonic traditions. And this path may lead one to violate prevailing or traditional commandments or taboos. But is there any room for larger community in this highly individualist ethos? What seems to substitute for a community, for a community of believers as the body of Christ, is a group of elect which are set apart from the common herd by what the novel calls, in a revisionist interpretation of scripture, the Mark of Cain. The mark sets apart those that have the strength to be true to themselves and embrace a Nietzschean amor fati, a love of fate. In Hesse's novel, this ethic remains an inward phenomenon that doesn't save its characters from a common fate on the killing fields. But the problem remains unanswered. Are there any acts which are forbidden, not merely to certain individuals, but to everybody. One can easily imagine an elitist, antinomian version of this ethos, under which the self-appointed elect are able to interpret their own destiny as allowing them to use other individuals as they see fit, with their daemon licensing all of their desires. And this, my friend, is simply Satanism in a nutshell we look for examples, it will not be lacking.
2: And they got all kinds of little sex paranoias and little little deceiving, little lying, cheating little things that they play, and then they'll push them off on somebody else and say it's all their fault, that they're no good and we got the bad guys locked up over here and we're all the good guys, you dig what I'm saying? When in reality, man, you got a bunch of scurvy fucking PC motherfucking pieces of shit, you dig what I'm saying? But that's on one hand. Here's where Abaraxis comes in. If they didn't have the love to do it, who in the fuck would?
1: Manson invokes the ancient god of the Gnostic pantheon, Abaraxas, or Abraxas, a symbol of the eternal now, a state of mind that exists beyond the false dichotomies of light and darkness, good and evil, right and wrong. Manson justifies his forgiveness of his captors in the name of Abraxas, a god that represents total reality.
2: I respect that same fucking asshole that I'm down on every day. That's Abaraxis, man. We roll on it. We've been rolling on it ever since he come on the tier. He comes on the chair and I say, fuck you, you son of a bitch. Those shit and piss in his face. You dig what I'm saying? Knock him down. And he comes back and feeds me with it and lets me live. And when he lets me live, then I look back at him and I say, well, you know, you're not so bad. After all, if you let me live, so then I have to let you live. So as long as I'm in here, i got to let him live, because he's only living in my life. Clang, bang, clang, went the big iron door. They put me in a cell with a
0: concrete... Where did Charles Manson learn of Abraxas? It's been speculated for years that Manson had some involvement with the infamous Process Church of the Final Revelation. Now, I'd hate to get into another huge rabbit hole here, but the Process was a fascinating element of 1960s occulture. It began in England and migrated to California, conveniently in time for the psychedelic explosion. It was founded by Scientologists and sometimes categorized as a kind of Satanism. The relevant point in their theology for us is that they had a fourfold Godhead composed of Jehovah, Lucifer, Christ, and Satan. I don't know if there was a direct Jungian influence, but it seems to reflect Jung's idea that Satan was the missing element of the Christian Trinity his desire to integrate good and evil in the image of Abraxas, and the way he tended to structure his ideas in fours, related to the mandala, a symbol of wholeness. Although more esoteric than the well-known image of Baphomet, Abraxas crops up in the satanic milieu with some frequency. The industrial musician Boyd Rice founded a so-called social Darwinist think tank, with Satanist musician and Manson ultra-fanboy Nicholas Schreck from his Wikipedia page. The organization promotes authoritarianism, totalitarianism, misanthropism, and elitism, is anti-democratic, and has some some philosophical overlap with the Church of Satan. He describes his philosophy as the strong rule the weak and the clever rule the strong. Add some ideological racism, and you've got your straight-ticket Nazi platform right there. Now, if you want my two bits, most of this is aesthetic. Guys like Boyd Rice like having a dangerous image and the frisson of taboo violation. And in our milk-toast liberal PC post-Christian culture, nothing gets the good so quick as Nazi shit. But in my opinion, uh, Rice does have some interesting music, especially under the label non- although I'm not particularly impressed with Shrek. Adam Parfrey, another associate of the Abraxas Foundation, the founder of the infamous publishing outfit Feral House, is probably the most interesting and intelligent of the bunch, but uh, I do have some deep reservations about some of their books. It's hard to find out much about the Abraxas Foundation, but these guys have claimed deep influence, and that may be jive or maybe not. In a lot of ways, this scene, which was based in L.A. and influenced by Manson, the Process Church, and Anton LaVey's Church of Satan, prefigured the alt-right. But at this point, I guess it's fair to ask, what in the Sam heck does this all have to do with frogs? Well, let's get back to Jung's Red Book. Again, this is a complex, realistic mythos, rising from Jung's own fantasias. He repeatedly refers to Abraxas as the frog god, end quote, the lord of the toads and frogs which live in the water and go up on the land, whose chorus ascends at noon and midnight. End quote. Sometimes he's referred to as son of the frogs. Also variously called Pan, Priapus, and hermaphrodite. In Black Book Six, Young notes that abraxas is the god of the frogs, and that, quote, the god of the frogs or toads, the brainless one, is the union of the Christian god with Satan. An ancient Greek magical papyrus denotes Abraxas as the headless one. Another Red Book passage says, quote, You are in the second age. The first age has been overcome. This is the age of the rulership of the sun, whom you call the frog god. A third age will follow the age of apportionment and harmonious power." Quote. Abraxas is to be the god of the new age and a terrible one at that. It's interesting to compare this with Crowley's idea of the Aeon of Horus emerging at about the same time. Although Jung is reviving a Gnostic image from antiquity he often speaks as if he is giving birth to the God himself from his soul which takes personified form in his text I won my soul, and what did she give birth for me? You, monster, a son, ha, a frightful miscreant, a stammerer, a newt's brain, a primordial lizard. You want to be king of the earth? You want to banish proud free men, bewitch beautiful women, break up castles, rip open the belly of old cathedrals, dumb thing, a lazy bug-eyed frog that wears pond weed on his skull's pate and you want to call yourself my son. You're no son of mine, but the spawn of the devil. The father of the devil entered into the womb of my soul, and in you has become flesh. You gave me the force of magic. You crowned me. You clad me with a shimmer of power that let me play a would-be Joseph father to your son. You lodged a puny basilisk in the nest of the dove. My soul, you adulterous whore, You became pregnant with this bastard i am dishonored i laughable father of the antichrist how i mistrusted you and how poor was my mistrust that it could not gauge the magnitude of this infamous act what do you break apart you broke love and life in twain from this ghastly sundering the frog and the son of the frog come forth ridiculous disgusting sight irresistible advent they will sit on the banks of the sweet water and listen to the nocturnal song of the frogs since their god has been born as a son of frogs, quote. Frog and toad imagery recurs throughout the Red Book. He has a dream in which he's marching with a battalion and encounters an excavation at a crossroads which contains a stone figure of a frog or toad with a human head and sitting behind it is a boy with a toad's head. In another dream, he enters a cave which fills him with fear, but he explores it anyway. The bottom is covered with black water, underneath which he can see a luminous stone which shines with a cold red light. A footnote to this dream notes that, quote, Albrecht Diederich refers to the representation of the underworld in Aristophanes' The Frogs, which he understood to be of Orphic origin, as having a large lake and a place with serpents. Jung underlined these motifs in his copy. Dietrich refers to his description again on page 83, which Jung marked by the margin and underlined darkness and mud. Dietrich also referred to an Orphic representation of a, steam, of a stream of mud in the underworld. In his list of references in the back of his copy, Jung noted mud. This reference is really important Diederich was a now-obscure German scholar that produced the first modern study of Abraxas in 1891, which clearly influenced Jung. I don't even think there's an English translation of his book, uh, which is too bad, because I'd like to get hold of that. Obviously, we've been dealing with Aristophanes since the beginning of this series, and we'll continue to. Before that though, let's go back and deal with another amphibious episode from those heady days of Trump and esoteric Kekism. On October 13, 2015, Trump retweeted a representation of himself as Pepe, associated with a video called You Can't Stump the Trump Volume 4. It was in late 2015 that the alt-right started adopting Pepe, but the association between the two was not yet cemented since relatively mainstream sites were naming it one of the most important memes of the year. Pepe, that is. And as recently as 2014, it had been shared online by celebrities like Katy Perry and Nicki Minaj. A few days later, on October 16th, a video was uploaded to Alex Jones' YouTube channel in which he went on a rant claiming that Pentagon had tested a gay bomb on Iraq and ended, quote, I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. I was going to try to do an Alex Jones impression there, but uh, y- you could probably tell I have a bit of a cold right now. It's, it's not going to happen. Anyway, uh, naturally, that video went viral. It just sounds so silly and hysterical. Why would the elites be trying to turn frogs gay? And of course it was wrong. They weren't turning frogs gay. They were turning frogs trans or maybe they were. The main issue which as you might imagine was missed behind all the memeing was with the herbicide atrazine manufactured by a company called Syngenta. It's used to kill weeds and increase crop yields for things like corn and sugarcane and it's also used on golf courses. It lasts for about 40 days in the soil but rain can cause runoff that gets into groundwater. Atrazine is heavily regulated. The EPA allows no more than three parts per billion in drinking water. Anything more than one drop in an Olympic-sized swimming pool of water is unsafe for humans to drink. Still, atrazine remains one of the most widely used herbicides in the US and Australia. As of 2001, it was the most commonly detected pesticide in contaminated drinking water. The European Union banned it in 2004 when they found groundwater levels above the regulatory levels, and Syngenta failed to demonstrate that this was safe or preventable. In 2012, there was a class action lawsuit against Syngenta, and although they denied all wrongdoing, agreed to pay 105 million dollars to reimburse more than a thousand water systems for the cost of filtering atrazine from drinking water in multiple studies over the years the environmental protection agency has assured the public of atrazine safety below regulatory levels but deborah corey selecta a university of rochester professor who has served on the epa's science advisory board says quote there's still a huge amount we don't know about atrazine. And the EPA vastly underestimates the risk because of the way it tests chemicals. The Natural Resources Defense Council, an environmentalist nonprofit, went further and said that the EPA is ignoring atrazine contamination. One problem with the way they regulate is that municipalities are allowed to report their annual average. And contamination tends to spike in spring, you know, the season when crops grow and rain falls, therefore when atrazine is actually used. So you could potentially have very unhealthy levels for that period and still meet regulatory standards when you average it out over the year. So what's the problem with atrazine? It's believed by some to be a carcinogen and an endocrine disruptor, meaning that it can cause cancer and mess with your hormones thus birth defects and reproductive problems. This is probably the most hot button politically charged issue in the world right now next to maybe climate change, but sex and gender in humans and other animals has quite a strong relationship with hormones. According to the environmental working group, quote, research on the endocrine disrupting potential of atrazine suggests that it acts by depressing the luteinizing hormone leading to increased production of estrogen and prolactin in females and changes in testosterone levels in males. As the EPA summarized in a presentation to its science advisory board in 2011, in studies of laboratory animals, these hormonal changes delay puberty, alter the development and function of the breast and ovaries, damage testes, and cause prostate inflammation. End quote. Delay puberty, you say. Hey, remember that bit about how the Aeon of Horus was supposed to be the age of the crowned and conquering child? You remember how Alistair Crowley ritually crucified a frog with the aim of, among other things, bringing this age about? Hey, do you remember that story I told last time by the biologist and inventor of transhumanism, Julian Huxley, and his sci-fi story about an endocrinologist transforming an African village? Yeah, that's all probably nothing. One of the main points of contention in the atrazine controversy is a study conducted in 2002 by the University of California, Berkeley biologist Tyrone Hayes, in which he found that atrazine exposure feminized male African clawed frogs and leopard frogs, turned male tadpoles into female tadpoles, impaired fertility, and caused some individuals of both sexes to become hermaphrodites. Basically, it created reproductive havoc. Male frogs had trunken voice boxes, which are essential in courting females. Some had testes that produced eggs instead of sperm. The theory was that atrazine activates a gene that produces an enzyme called aromatase, which converts androgens to estrogens, literally feminizing or chemically castrating males. He believes it could affect humans as well. If the story of frogs changing gender sounds familiar, it might be because it was a plot point in Jurassic Park. It's discovered at one point that the dinosaurs in the park have been breeding, which should have been impossible because all of them were engineered to be female.
2: How do you know they're all female? Does somebody yeah. go out in the park and pull up the dinosaurs' skirts? We
0: control
1: their chromosomes.
2: It's really not that difficult. All vertebrate embryos are inherently female
0: anyway. They just require an extra hormone given at the right developmental stage to make them male. We simply deny them that. Deny them that? John, the kind of control you're attempting is, uh, it's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but, uh, well, there it is. There it is. You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. The so scientists used frog DNA for the incomplete dinosaur genetic sequences. And some frogs have been known to spontaneously change sex in an environment where all of the animals are of the same sex. But there, it's females turning into males for the purpose of reproduction, life finding a way. What Tyrone Hayes found was pretty much the opposite effect. As he says, quote, Atrazine isn't killing the frogs, but if they're reproductively impaired, that's killing the population, End quote. Hayes therefore advocates banning atrazine, as Europe has done. He claims that since publishing the study, Syngenta has waged a merciless smear campaign against him, sending people to conferences to criticize him and call him and his study into question. This led to Hayes engaging in a very ill-advised series of email exchanges with someone from Syngenta, who was especially critical, that was profane, sexually aggressive, and quoted DMX a lot. Syngenta then published the emails and filed an ethics complaint with UC Berkeley. If it was a smear campaign, Hayes played right into its hands. The story got picked up by sites like Gawker, although Hayes had some sympathetic articles about him in publications like The New Yorker and Mother Jones, and became the subject of a 2009 book for children called The Frog Scientist. After those emails leaked and Alex Jones reduced his work to a meme, it's clear that he's not about to become the Rachel Carson of Gay Frogs. The position of the mainstream media and academic establishment on all this is best summed up by an article I found by an academic named Meg Parrott. That's Parrott ET, not OT, but the homonym is implied, called Chemical Castration, White Genocide and Male Extinction in the Rhetoric of Endocrine Disruption. It adopts the perspective of, quote, queer ecology and raises the specter of eco-fascism. Quote, I find that atrazine discourse is imbued with cultural anxieties about the extinction of normative masculinity in an increasingly toxic world. Popular science coverage of Hayes et al. appeals to cultural disgust for male bodies that transgress gender norms and to cultural anxieties about transgender people quote, passing as cisgender these representations perpetuate trans misogyny a term from feminist theory that describes discrimination against trans women who are impacted by both transphobia and misogyny end quote i would never say that humans do not project their cultural values onto nature whether it's masculinity, whiteness, heteronormativity, feminism, queerness, et al. But Parrot's paper exhibits all the limitations of academics and journalists in treating discourse only with total indifference to facts on the ground. It's like it's enough to name a phenomenon and call it something like eco-normativity then code that term negative or positive, and call it a day. From the paper again, quote, Both Jones and Hayes emphasize the feminization of male bodies and the inability of those affected to reproduce as biological males as undermining the future of the species amidst environmental toxicity. In the context of the rhetoric of male decline, white heterosexual masculinity becomes an endangered species, end quote. Parrott cites two other scholars that, quote, demonstrate the discussion surrounding endocrine disruptors portrays human sex, particularly male sex, as under siege, endangered, and threatened, end quote. I find this sort of thing remarkable. It's enough to find that a discourse encodes cultural anxieties regarding a particular group, here men, to which the academic is not sympathetic, to automatically delegitimize such discourse never to even ever, ever ask the question of whether such anxieties are justified or not. It's just assume that they're not. It's just every line screams, they're talking like this and it's bad, oh no. And it helps a lot that Alex Jones, for instance, embodies a whole bunch of characteristics from his anger to his performative meat-eating that feminist discourse marks as toxic. Tyrone Hayes fits this profile as well. When Syngenta sent someone to attack his status and authority as a scientist, Hayes responded aggressively. But here's something interesting also. A parrot not only plays the toxic masculinity card, she basically says that worrying about atrazine causing endocrine disruption makes you a Nazi. Quote, besides their rampant transmisogyny, far-right depictions of environmental issues are coded with concerns over perceived decline of white male social dominance. Scholars in masculinity studies have argued that a narrative of white male decline emerged in the U.S., In the 1960s and 1970s with the rise of identity-based social movements, including the civil rights movement and women's liberation. In popular discourse, as feminist literary scholar Sally Robinson describes, the quote white male victim emerged as the emblem of the crisis in white masculinity. White masculinity became culturally constructed as victimized, traumatized, and wounded. Jones portrays male decline in terms of the feminization of male genitalia, which he equates with the death of men and ultimately of our species. Feminist science studies scholars view this as an example of the broader phenomenon of casting white male decline in biological terms. End quote. Again, notice how we're always going to focus on emblems, portrayals, representations, never going to inquire as to how these things relate to reality and what is actually happening. The map is the territory. Anyway, the reason I find this so interesting is that Tyrone Hayes, the man at the center of the controversy, is black. One of the themes of his career has been his struggle for legitimacy as a scientist because of this. Can there be anything more emblematic of the general fucked-upness of the contemporary academic quote-unquote left than a feminist framing a black scientist as a promoter of white nationalism because he attacked a gigantic chemical corporation. It's any wonder the frogs are hopping mad. Since 2015, the Syngenta Group has been owned by the China National Chemical Corporation, which is of course owned by the Chinese state. (laughs)
1: Some were left in the sun too long And some got too much shade My forefathers are not me I said I'm sorry, sorry, so sorry that I'm white I'm sorry, sorry I don't want to fight tonight All this gold that you flash about I'm
0: not that envy, yeah. But while we're on the subject of gay and or racist frogs Have you guys heard of the band The Frogs? I always feel like that meme from American Psycho when I say stuff like this But I find their mix of catchy tunes, lo-fi production, irony, comedy, thematic transgression And underground alternative cult status to be highly germane to our discussion Most people haven't heard of them, but high-profile fans have included Kurt Cobain, Beck, and Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins. Their self-titled debut was a little too power-pop for my taste, but when It's Only Right and Natural came out in 89, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a deranged, drug-fueled, and profane atmosphere that really gives the songs a boost. But seriously, we're not. The frogs play here with gay stereotypes in a way that's not always clear whether it's satirizing homophobia or indulging in it. Quite honestly it reminds me of nothing so much as the podcast Come Town. They play with the same kind of third rail jokes that make a lot of people uncomfortable. Remember that the frog is invariably a liminal animal and will therefore be found at the border of okay and not okay humor. The Frogs got away with their gay-themed album, but when they went on to record a race-themed album, even the indie labels initially refused to put it out. First recorded in the early 90s, Racially Yours wasn't released until 2000. It featured a white man in blackface on the cover and a sticker that proclaims it, quote, the most controversial album of all time. It features songs song from the perspectives of both black and white, and such titles as Sorry I'm White, Now You Know You're Black, Dark Meat For Sale, and Two Blacks Don't Make a White. My theory. We're never going to get rid of these kinds of offensive hijinks as long as there is comedy in a culture. There may not always be comedy in our culture. Not every culture has produced it, just as not every culture has produced theater. It's not a universal. Aristotle claims that the origin of Greek comedy was the phallic procession. The essence or origin of Greek comic drama was ritual choral dance and group celebration of Dionysus, presumably to promote some kind of group solidarity and fertility and potency. These featured deliberate male sexual aggression, obscenities, and verbal abuse. In old comedy, male actors wore an oversized red leather phallus while mocking their audience and indulging in vulgar dialogue. The frogs, come town, even online trolling should all be viewed in this light. Comedy is rooted in male phallic potency and aggressive release of this energy. It's deliberately offensive. Of course, women can be funny, just as there can be good white rappers and jazz musicians, but this doesn't change the fact that comedy is phallocentric and jazz and rap are Afrocentric. But it's more than this. Old comedy, and Aristophanes in particular, had as its aim, perhaps paradoxically, solidarity and cultural renewal. So a quick recap on the plot of Frogs. The demigod Dionysus descends to Hades in order to bring back the recently deceased playwright Euripides at a desperate time for Athens. Although not really mentioned in the play, the background is the war with Sparta. In Hades, a contest is staged between Euripides, who represents the current generation of poets, and Aeschylus, who represents an older one. In the end, Dionysus returns to Athens with the soul of Aeschylus. Aristophanes may be offensive, but in the end, his goal is to save a city in peril. And for this, he needs the assistance of its greatest poet. There's been a lot of analysis about the politics of the frogs, but scholar Kenneth Dover sums up the message as simply Old ways good, new ways bad. You might say, that it was part of a campaign to make Athens great again. But Mark Griffith has a more complex take on the play. Quote, Frogs is about art and politics, about good versus bad tragedy, old versus new, the value of the arts in general, the city of Athens and anxieties about its future. But it is also about the possibilities and nature of the afterlife about salvation, personal and collective, about immortality even, of some kind, what happens after death, and the prospect of escaping or re-emerging from the darkness of the underworld into a state of renewed living in blessed light and eternal joy. And at the heart of all these issues we encounter, of course, the figure of Dionysus, enigmatic, transformative, theatrical, Let's consider these themes again, as they come up in an unlikely source. But first, another thing about Egyptian magic and frogs. Egyptologist Sir Wallace Budge tells us that amulets depicting the frog-headed goddess Heket, mentioned earlier, were often found on mummies and graves, These were meant to transfer to the deceased her power. What power? In the Osiris myth, it is Hecate that breathes new life into the body of Horus at birth. Once again, Crowley's frog ritual was meant to initiate the Aeon of Horus. It's possible that Hecate is the origin of Hecate, the Greek goddess of witchcraft. But Hecate is primarily a fertility goddess inspiring birth and rebirth. She was associated with the flooding of the Nile River, a time which would produce the mass frog migrations that may have generated the story about the plague of frogs in Exodus. On ancient Egyptian amulets and terracotta lamps, you will often find a picture of a frog and the legend, I am the resurrection. This practice and association continued into the Christian era and may be the distant source of our crucified frog. Now, in 1955, Warner Brothers produced a cartoon called One Froggy Evening, written by Michael Maltese and Chuck Jones. It tells the story of an unnamed construction worker who finds a small box hidden In the cornerstone of the JC Wilbur building after it's been demolished. Inside the box is a frog, a live frog, a live frog which dons a top hat and cane and begins to dance and sing show tunes and opera. What's the man's first thought upon witnessing this miracle? Dollar signs. He imagines himself getting rich as the man who brought the world, the singing, dancing frog. But when he takes the frog to a talent agent, the frog refuses to perform. So he rents a theater, luring the people in with free beer. But when he packs the house on opening night, again the frog merely croaks. Finally, he is reduced to a pitiful wreck, sleeping in the park, the only man in the world who can hear the frog's song. That is, until a cop hears it, assuming there's a madman singing in the park at night. When the man tries to blame the frog, of course, the cop hauls him off to a mental hospital. Upon his release, the man finds a building that's being dedicated and rids himself of the frog once and for all by putting it in the cornerstone. Where, of course, it's dug back up when the building is demolished 101 years later in the dazzling future of 2056 A.D. What is this cartoon about? I think we alone, after hours of explicating the symbol of the frog, are ready to say. First, we have a clear Masonic resonance. In the Frogs episode, we were told an anecdote given by Albert Mackey in his Encyclopedia of Freemasonry about a Masonic square and inscription that was found hidden in the foundation stone of Bale Bridge in Limerick, Ireland. The cornerstone is the first stone laid in the construction of a building. It's often accompanied by a dedication ceremony, and objects are often placed inside the stone. The practice is ancient and is a form of sacrifice. Offerings of grain, wine, and oil would be placed inside the foundation stone. Or an animal, such as a cock or lamb, would be killed and its blood spilled on the stone. This would give the building strength and stability. Modern Masons claim such practices have been replaced by the sacrifice of labor and time. The cornerstone symbolizes the individual Mason and his commitment to morality and truth. In any event, nothing great is accomplished without sacrifice. The frog is initially found in the J.C. Wilbur building. This apparently is a reference to someone who worked with Warner Brothers, but his name was Joseph P. Wilbur. The standard tool of literary interpretation that a character with the initials JC is usually a stand-in for Jesus Christ. Jim Casey from the Grapes of Wrath, John Coffey from the Green Mile, etc. Another aspect of the symbolism of one froggy evening is the fact that the frog goes into the ground, is sacrificed and placed in a symbolic grave, and yet does not die, but only lies dormant for long stretches of history. Like the ancient frog ambulance, he declares, I am the resurrection. The magic he represents cannot ever depart from the earth, but can only be hidden. God is alive, magic is afoot. Nor could it be exploited for personal gain. Whoever attempts this will be driven mad. Ironically, Warner Brothers' cartoon frog, although not named in One Froggy Evening, came to be known as Michigan J-Frog and was adopted as a kind of mascot. And yet, I'm reminded here of Emily Dickinson's poem, which goes, quote, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody, too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. How dreary, to be somebody. How public, like a frog. To tell one's name, the live-long June. To an admiring bog. End quote. There is the mystery which ought not be profaned, and there is the mystery which cannot be profaned. God is not mocked, life finds a way. But it's time to return from frog gods to frog men. We've seen the evolutionary view of 20th century scientists who saw man as an amphibian the cross between the two worlds of the biosphere and the noosphere. But the metaphor is older than that and has been employed by Christian writers as well. I'd like to leave off with someone who was a bit of both. In the 17th century, Thomas Brown wrote, We are only that amphibious piece between a corporeal and spiritual essence, that middle form that links those two together and makes good the method of God and nature, ...that jumps not from extremes, but unites the incompatible distances by some middle and participating natures. That we are the breath and similitude of God, it is indisputable, and upon record of holy scripture. But to call ourselves a microcosm, or little world, I thought it only a pleasant trope of rhetoric, till my near judgment and second thoughts told me that there was a real truth therein. For first we are a rude mass and in the rank of creatures which only are, and have a dull kind of being, not yet privileged with life, or preferred to sense or reason. Next we live the life of plants, the life of animals, the life of men, and at last the life of spirits, running on in one mysterious nature, those five kind of existences, which comprehend the creatures, not only of the world, but of the universe. Thus is man that great and true amphibium whose nature is disposed to live not only like other creatures in diverse elements but in divided and distinguished worlds. For though there be but one to sense there are two to reason the one visible, the other invisible. End quote. Is the frog God, Christ, Keck, Ogdoad or Abraxas. Was Jesus a frog? Is man a frog? Is a toad man the highest stage of evolution? Are we under the spell of a lying toad spirit, a hypno-toad in service to the wickedest man in the world? Are frogs rising up after being experimented on for centuries? If Pharaoh does not let my people go, shall his borders not be plagued with frogs? If frogs rain from the sky, will they not splat on the ground? Is not the bug man the proper food of the frog? And if you crucify a frog, will he not rise once more? At last we return again to the question of Thomas Henry Huxley. Has a frog a soul? And now we answer, no. A frog is a soul. An immortal one. Jump. (laughs)
2: Right, uh-huh. Well, Froggy went a and he did right on uh-huh. Well, Froggy went a and he did right.
1: So Oh, 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 yeah.
2: Miss Miles, will you marry me? Be, uh-huh. well, what will the wedding supper be, uh-huh. well, what will the wedding supper be, the dog not super hand again,